You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey to the most destructive conflict in human history. A journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 18, Vindication. You'll have to forgive me if my voice sounds a bit off. I'm getting over a winter cold and still not back to 100%. But I didn't want to delay this recording any more than I already have, so here we go. We left off last time in the late summer of 1793. This was the season of the so-called Federalist Revolt. Moderate liberals all over France had risen up against the Jacobin government in Paris. The Federalists quickly seized control of most major cities outside Paris, but were unable to capitalize on their success. The rebels were poorly coordinated, inexperienced in war, and lacked popular support. Almost as quickly as they'd risen up, pro-Jacobin Republican forces began retaking territory. Napoleon was a part of these efforts, back with the regular army at last. He had just received a big break a promotion to major, and appointment to commander of artillery for the Army of the Alps under General Jean-Francois Carteau. Napoleon may have been a major, but he remained largely untested as an officer. The sum total of his combat experience was the brief, unsuccessful expedition to La Maddalena and losing a battle to civilians during the Easter riots in Ajaccio. Since returning to the regular army, Napoleon had been far from the front lines, serving as a supply officer. He performed his duties with energy, but until the promotion, he'd been little more than a clerk in uniform. He owed his success entirely to the goodwill of friends in high places. Carteau had led his army to victory after victory against the Federalists that summer, but he made an unlikely wartime commander. He was a former junior cavalry officer who'd left the army to take up a successful career as a portrait painter only returning to service as a middle-aged man. The French army was growing fast, and the officer corps was depleted by casualties, political purges, and defections, so all kinds of men were rising to the top. As the Republican troops advanced across southern France, they brought harsh justice in their wake. Members of the convention were attached to the staff of every army, and assigned to every region and major city. These were known as the Representatives on Mission. They were delegated with extraordinary powers to investigate and punish treason. Their primary mission was retribution against the rebels, but they were also meant to ensure the loyalty of the officers and local government officials within their jurisdiction. It was not a pretty or popular job. 
Some representatives on mission did their best to be fair. Others let the desperate emergency conditions and near-absolute powers go to their heads, and engaged in indiscriminate massacres. The representatives Napoleon encountered in southern France in 1793 were not the worst of the worst, but they were definitely on the bloodthirsty side of the spectrum. Every time the Republicans captured a town, you could hear the crackle of firing squads. Then the guillotine went up in the town square. Napoleon wrote to Joseph, quote, Everywhere, terror has preceded us. End quote. Now, we shouldn't get carried away. We're talking about hundreds of people here, not thousands. And a lot of them had taken up arms against the government during wartime, which is pretty much the textbook definition of treason. Still, this was an ugly, sloppy process, and it often didn't look much like justice. Tribunals typically lasted minutes, not hours. Defendants were often tried in large batches as a group. Sentences were often carried out cruelly and as public spectacle. Napoleon did not approve of all the bloodshed. Even in his political pamphlet, The Supper at Beaucaire, he readily conceded that the new radical government was, as he put it, too sanguine. However, he remained committed to the revolution, and convinced the Jacobins were the best men to lead France. Despite his reservations about their methods, Napoleon wooed many of the local representatives on mission as political allies. His old patron, Salicetti, was among them, as was Augustin Robespierre, brother of the most powerful man in France, who was won over by Napoleon's commitment to the cause. Another was a former journalist named Stanislaw Freron, who was won over by the charms of Pauline Bonaparte, Napoleon's sister. It was these new friendships that earned Napoleon his latest promotion and new post, over the doubts of General Carteau. He was now a political soldier, seen as the creature of civilian bureaucrats. Some of his fellow officers doubted he had the competence to handle this new position gained from favoritism. A major battle was looming, and those doubts would soon be put to the test. On August the 29th, 1793, Republican forces began to surround the city of Toulon, the last Federalist stronghold in southern France. Marseille was the biggest city in the area, and had served as the regional capital of the rebellion, but in many ways Toulon was a more important strategic prize. This was the headquarters of the French Mediterranean fleet, comparable in importance to San Diego or Pearl Harbor to the U.S. Navy today, or Portsmouth to the modern Royal Navy. As such, it was heavily fortified and home to important naval infrastructure. Around a third of the entire French navy was based in Toulon. A large British fleet had just arrived in the region, under Admiral Lord Samuel Hood. Hood was old. He had been one of the principal British sea commanders during the American War of Independence, and had just left the position of chief of staff of the entire Royal Navy. He was perhaps the most respected naval officer in Britain. Upon arriving in the area, Hood immediately sent a large part of his force to blockade Toulon. The French were not seeking a major fleet engagement, and it would have been suicide for the British to try to enter the well-defended harbor. So the two sides spent most of August eyeing each other from a distance. Admiral de Trogoff, commander of the French Mediterranean fleet, was no Federalist. But he wasn't a Jacobin either, 
De Trogoff was exactly the type of man who the representatives on mission had been sent to hunt down, a closet royalist who was biding his time, paying lip service to the government until the opportunity came to strike a blow for the monarchy. With the Federalist Rebellion collapsing, de Trogoff and other Toulon royalists felt that opportunity had arrived. They sent emissaries to Hood's fleet. In exchange for British help seizing control of the city and the fleet, the royalists promised to place Toulon under the protection of the coalition and put their ships under British control. Admiral Hood accepted. On August 27th, a force of British sailors and marines landed outside Toulon and seized key fortifications around the harbor. There were ideologically committed Federalists in the fleet who attempted to resist, but by the next day, they had all surrendered or fled to Republican lines. Those who resisted were a small minority. Most people in Toulon were relieved. The Federalist Rebellion had fizzled out so quickly that there hadn't been time to properly prepare the city for a siege. The stores of gunpowder, ammunition, and even food were dangerously low. There weren't enough men to properly garrison the city's extensive fortifications. Whatever their ideological beliefs, the citizens of Toulon, the Federalist troops, and the sailors in the fleet could all see that without help, the city would quickly fall just like every other rebel-held city in southern France. By now they knew surrender to the Republicans would mean harsh revolutionary justice. Toulon was the last stand for the Federalists. There would be nowhere to run if the city fell. Many people inside Toulon felt that if avoiding the firing squads and the guillotine meant collaborating with the British and throwing in their lot with the coalition, so be it. And so, on August the 27th, 1793, Admiral Hood sailed into the harbor, unopposed. He brought with him a massive force. The British had been joined by smaller contingents from their coalition allies in southern Europe, Spain, Naples, and Piedmont. All told, there were nearly a hundred warships and 13,000 infantry. These troops immediately reinforced the city's undermanned fortifications and went to work expanding and improving them. Within weeks, Toulon was protected by a ring of forts, entrenchments, and artillery batteries over 15 miles long. That's 24 kilometers. This was a disaster for the Republicans. The revolution was fighting on too many fronts. The end of the Federalist Rebellion in the South seemed to be within reach, and the Republic desperately needed to close that front and put those resources to use elsewhere. Toulon was the last hurdle before reaching that goal, but instead of facing a small, poorly supplied rebel militia, Carteau was now up against a huge, well-fortified garrison of professional soldiers. On August 26th, a total Republican victory in this theater of war looked like it was weeks or even just days away. By August 28th, there was no end in sight. There would be no chance of quickly steamrolling Toulon, as the Republicans had done in Avignon, Aix, Marseille, and countless other cities and towns in southern France. As soon as the siege began, General Carteau's limitations as a commander became more glaring. He was a brave, charismatic soldier and passionately committed to the cause, but siege warfare is more science than art, and he lacked many of the requisite skills. Sieges are won with patience, industriousness, persistence, engineering, logistics, and geometry. 
General Carteau was not cut out for any of these. He was a cavalryman and an artist, by disposition as well as by trade, an impatient hard charger, perfectly suited to storming through southern France, pouncing on the Federalists before they had time to organize. But when it came to the mundane, meticulous business of siege warfare, he was hopeless. This wasn't just a character issue. Warfare had changed a lot since Carteau was at military school, particularly the fields of artillery and fortifications. He had not kept up to date on these changes. Bonaparte's expertise in these areas was one of the reasons Carteau had acquiesced to his appointment. Unfortunately for the French, it would take a talented commander to capture a position as strong as Toulon, and Carteau was not that. Generally, there were two ways besieging armies captured fortified cities. The first was to choke off the flow of supplies to the defenders, then bombard the city. The combination of hunger, ammunition shortages, and relentless artillery fire could force a surrender. The second method was to concentrate artillery fire on a vulnerable part of the defenses to create what's known as a breach, a gap in the fortifications that could then be stormed by the infantry. Toulon was uniquely prepared to resist both approaches. With its port and the large coalition fleet to bring in supplies, it was unlikely food and ammunition would be an issue, no matter how long the French kept them surrounded from the land. Storming a breach was one of the most dangerous maneuvers in 18th century warfare. Even if successful, the attacking force typically suffered huge casualties. Carteau's army had about 30,000 men, compared to 20,000 coalition troops defending the city. Those margins were not big enough for a full-on frontal assault to be feasible. And to make matters worse, Hood's fleet had brought heavy artillery and experienced well-trained gun crews. Cannon were all important in a siege. These were the only weapons that could strike from afar and damage or destroy trenches and fortifications. Capturing Toulon would take a creative approach and a lot of hard work. Once his army surrounded the city's landward defenses and dug entrenchments, Carteau was unsure how to proceed. He brushed off the advice of his subordinates, but seems to have had no plan of his own other than to sit outside the walls and hope for the situation to change. Despite his commander's indecision, Napoleon was not the type to sit still. He knew sieges are won or lost by artillery, so he set about reforming and expanding his command to meet the challenge. He sent his deputies all over southern France in search of more cannons and supplies. When Napoleon took command, the coalition troops in Toulon had artillery superiority. But by cajoling local garrison commanders and supply officers, Napoleon soon assembled enough cannon to outmatch them. He built workshops to repair damaged weapons and forge more guns and shot. When the siege began, there was one battery of cannons in action. By the end of the siege, there would be 50 batteries built, and up to 11 engaged at one time. The Republican gunners gave them colorful names. The Jacobin Battery the Convention Battery, the Rogue Hunters, the Sans-Culottes, the Four Windmills, the Men Without Fear Battery. Ammunition and gunpowder were a particular problem. Napoleon needed his guns firing more or less continuously all day. 
As the number of cannon grew, so did the need for shot and powder. He soon had the army manufacturing enough cannonballs to supplement the meager supply from Paris, but gunpowder was trickier. Napoleon's supply officers spent the siege roving all over southern France, begging or stealing every grain of gunpowder they could find. He told them, quote, We can remain 24, or if necessary, 36 hours without eating, but we cannot remain three minutes without gunpowder. Napoleon seemed to be everywhere at once, scouting enemy positions, talking with his men, even personally sighting individual guns, a job which even junior officers typically left to their sergeants and corporals. On one occasion, Napoleon was present when a battery took a direct hit from coalition artillery, killing several gunners. He picked up a bloody ramrod from a dead crewman and helped load a gun to return fire. At night, Napoleon often stayed at a battery rather than returning to camp, sleeping on the ground by his guns, wrapped in a cloak, just like the gunners. When he wasn't overseeing the bombardment of Toulon, he bombarded the Ministry of War with letters, demanding more supplies, men, and trained officers. From one of these letters, quote, You ought to accord the artillery of this army that consideration and independence which time-honored military custom have conceded to it, and without which it can be of no great service. You will give me some credit, citizen minister, for these different operations when you learn that I have to direct the camp, the military operations, and the arsenal all alone, that I have not even a sub-officer of artisans, that I have only fifty men to work the guns in position, and that many of these are fresh recruits. What we require most is gunpowder, and I hope you will exert yourself to send me supply without delay. End quote. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Napoleon never got as much support as he felt he needed from Paris, but the war ministry did respond, begrudgingly, to his pleas. As requested, they assigned him two assistants. Auguste de Marmont, and Jean-Andoche Junot, both of whom would remain by Napoleon's side for years to come. Junot was 21. Just 18 months before arriving at Toulon, he'd been a farmer, but he answered the call to defend the revolution in 1792, distinguished himself on the battlefield, and was now a sergeant. Junot was unbelievably brave, maybe even reckless. In barely a year of war, he'd already been wounded twice, including a strike to the head from an Austrian cavalryman's saber that nearly killed him. Junot's coolness under fire immediately impressed Napoleon. The second assistant, Lieutenant Marmont, was just 18 years old. He was a lot like Napoleon, the son of an obscure minor nobleman who had attended military school, excelled in mathematics, and trained as an artilleryman. 
The two had even met briefly before the revolution. At Toulon, Marmont and Napoleon immediately clicked. They saw the world the same way, and shared a proclivity for order and logic. Good traits in an assistant. Napoleon was a guarded, introverted person with few close confidants. Marmont quickly became one of them. They would remain friends for decades, although each would eventually disappoint the other. Junot would eventually reach the rank of general. Marmont became a marshal of France, the highest rank in the army. Under Napoleon's empire, both men would be made dukes. Napoleon was keeping himself busy, but the representatives on mission accompanying the army were not pleased with Carteau's lack of initiative. French strategic goals demanded that this campaign be wrapped up as quickly as possible. They had supported Carteau during the summer, when he was fulfilling that goal, but now that the campaign was stalled, they turned on him. In an official report back to the convention, Salicetti called Carteau incapable. The criticisms of the representatives on mission carried a lot of weight. These were members of the convention themselves. In his letters to the war ministry, Napoleon joined in the chorus criticizing his commander. He was sick of being ignored and overruled, and blamed Carteau's passivity for allowing Hood to sail into Toulon Harbor unopposed. In the most scathing passage of these communications, Napoleon called him a fool, and formally called for him to be relieved of command. Perhaps to protect himself from retaliation, he got Salicetti and Augustin Robespierre to co-sign the letter. Now, it wasn't against military law or regulation for Napoleon to go over Carteau's head like this, but it might easily be considered a breach of military etiquette. If Napoleon's fellow officers had known about this, many would have considered it dishonorable. Complaints about his abuse of political connections probably would have grown louder, and they would have had a point. On the other hand, Carteau was clearly out of his depth. Like it or not, Napoleon had these connections to the Jacobin leadership. Why not use them for the good of the army and the cause? If you were in Napoleon's shoes, would you stay silent while your commander let down the Republic and got men killed through his incompetence, purely out of good manners? Of course, Napoleon also had selfish reasons to criticize Carteau. Carteau was ignoring his advice, and he was backing up his political patrons who wanted to get rid of the old painter. Whatever the case, on November 11th, Carteau was relieved of command. Like so many other unsuccessful generals during the Reign of Terror, he was soon imprisoned. Carteau was cleared of any wrongdoing, and eventually saw action again in a minor command, but his army career was effectively over, and he soon retired. Shortly after Napoleon came to power, he appointed Carteau administrator of the National Lottery, a cushy, do-nothing job that came with good pay and a measure of respect. Maybe he felt guilty for his role in Carteau's downfall, or maybe he simply liked him. Carteau was a charismatic man, and Napoleon rarely took these types of professional disagreements personally. Carteau's replacement was General François Dalpay, who, unbelievably, had a very similar resume to Carteau's. He'd served as an officer in his youth, but left the army to pursue a career in medicine. He was more of a quack than a physician and also wrote bad literature and poetry on the side. Dalpay was almost as bad a military commander as he was a doctor, but these were desperate times. 
Dappé was a fervent Jacobin, and there were precious few trained military officers the convention found politically reliable. So he rose quickly through the ranks. Dappé was impressed by Napoleon's energy and intelligence. But Napoleon soon found himself just as annoyed at Dappé's incompetence and indecisiveness as he had been at Carteau's. Consensus among the officers of the Army of the Alps was that the Siege of Toulon would be a long affair. The way they saw it, the Republicans would have no choice but to spend agonizing months fighting inch by inch to get closer to the town and the harbor, wearing the enemy down and getting their guns into better and better positions until they could bombard Toulon itself, and most importantly, the fleet in the harbor. If they could do that, there would be no safe refuge for the defenders, and it would become much more difficult to resupply the city from the sea. Then there might be a real chance of Toulon surrendering, but it would mean months of taking the coalition's outlying fortifications one by one, and likely cost thousands of casualties. Major Bonaparte had a plan he believed could significantly shorten and simplify this process. The harbor of Toulon is protected from the open sea by a series of peninsulas that jut out into the Mediterranean. These are what make it such a perfect site for a port, and why the French chose it as headquarters for the Mediterranean fleet. These natural land barriers protect the ships inside from the elements, and make it easy to guard the narrow entrance against enemy raids. Napoleon saw that this great strength of Toulon could also be a fatal weakness. If the Republicans could gain control over one of those peninsulas, the situation of the defenders would suddenly become very dangerous. Once the French got artillery onto the peninsula, they would be able to bombard the harbor at will. That narrow entrance to the harbor would become a death trap. Napoleon believed Admiral Hood would have no choice but to move his ships out of harm's way before that could happen. That would mean either evacuating the city or abandoning the coalition infantry without any hope of resupply. In short, Napoleon thought victory was as simple as taking a single position, and he believed he had identified that position, a hill called Le Caire, which dominates one of the peninsulas and was only weakly defended. Soon after taking command of the artillery, Napoleon became like a broken record, incessantly badgering Carteau to attack Le Caire so he could set up a battery. Carteau refused for months, but eventually relented, then got cold feet at the last minute and reduced the size of the assault force and refused to reinforce it when he met British resistance. The attack failed. And worse, it tipped the coalition off to the strategic importance of the hill. They immediately began fortifying Le Caire with a series of entrenchments and artillery batteries. The British troops who manned the hill called these defenses Fort Mulgrave after their commanding officer. Looking up at this imposing position, the French called it Little Gibraltar after the famously impregnable British outpost in Iberia which had once held out under siege for three years. Carteau had blown a golden opportunity. General Dappé took command soon after. He was more receptive to Napoleon, but remained unconvinced of the plan, and unwilling to commit any large body of men to something he did not believe in. 
Dupay approved an assault on Fort Mulgrave on November 15th. Napoleon led the attack himself. Resistance was fierce, and Dupay ordered a retreat almost immediately. Napoleon was furious. The attacking force was far from beaten when the order came. He believed Dupay's timidness had snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Yet again, the British reinforced the hill. A few days later, Napoleon led a small raid on an outpost outside Fort Mulgrave. The Republicans stormed the fort, but as they cleared the walls, a wounded British gunner managed to stab Napoleon, either with a pike or a bayonet. Sources differ. The blade entered Napoleon's left leg just above the knee. It was a grave wound. Upon first examination, the doctors seriously debated amputation. But fortunately for Napoleon, no major nerves or arteries were damaged. The leg healed quickly, and there was no infection. He was back on his feet in a week, but carried a nasty scar with him for the rest of his life. Only six days later, much the same thing happened to Napoleon's counterpart. General Charles O'Hara, commander of Fort Mulgrave, was wounded leading a raid on one of Napoleon's batteries. Still limping, Napoleon quickly organized a counterattack. They easily cut off the small British raiding party, and poor General O'Hara was forced to surrender. The capture of an enemy general is a big deal, and combined with the glowing reports of Napoleon's reorganization of the artillery, it was enough to secure him promotion to colonel. Once again, his political friends helped tip the scales, but this time there really was at least some degree of meritorious service to justify Colonel Bonaparte's rank. General Dappé, the quack doctor, did not even last a month in command. His subordinates, the representatives on mission, the government, even Dappé himself, soon realized he was out of his depth. He requested to be relieved of command, and nobody objected. To replace Dappé, the convention finally sent an experienced, competent commander, General Jacques Dugommier, a career soldier who had served with distinction in the Seven Years' War. Dugommier immediately saw the value in Napoleon's plan to seize Le Caire and committed to it fully. He approved another major assault on Fort Mulgrave, this time with enough men to do the job and with the resolve to fight to the finish. The attack would take place on December 17th, in the wee hours of the morning. Risky, but necessary, given the British advantage in firepower, looking down from their protected positions on the hill. A storm rolled in that night, but the attack went ahead. The driving rain was good cover, too, and the thunder and lightning in the background certainly added to the drama. The assault began at one in the morning when light infantry under Lieutenant Colonel Claude Victor, another future Marshal of France, stormed up the hill, surprising the British. Victor's men quickly captured a large section of the first trench line, but the defenders were now roused, and they held firm at a secondary trench line. The French assault seemed fatally stalled. Then, a second prong of attackers under Napoleon hit another part of the fort. Napoleon took a bad fall when his horse was shot out from under him, but recovered quickly and led the charge on foot. The British could not move enough men quickly enough to face this new threat, and within moments, the French had broken through. There was fierce hand-to-hand -hand fighting, but the British were massively outnumbered, and the Republicans were now streaming into the fort from two directions. It was over. 
The surviving defenders ran for their lives. The little Gibraltar had fallen. Napoleon and his gunners immediately went to work turning the fort's cannon on the fleet. Within minutes, they opened fire. The first direct hit scored by the French gunners that night was on a Spanish supply ship loaded with gunpowder. It exploded, which touched off an explosion in the ship next to it, also a supply ship loaded with gunpowder. Suddenly, the whole harbor was lit up. Napoleon described the scene, quote, The whirlwind of flames and smoke resembled the eruption of a volcano. The ships blazing in the harbor were like so many displays of fireworks. The masts and forms of the vessels were distinctly traced out by the flames, which lasted many hours and formed an unparalleled spectacle. End quote. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Every soldier around Toulon on both sides had been watching the action at Fort Mulgrave. In the dark of the night, it was hard to see exactly what had happened. But as soon as those ships went up, it was clear to every observer. The French had won. It also became clear that the capture of the fort put the coalition forces in a precarious position, as the destruction of the Spanish ships proved, with French artillery on the hill of Le Caire, Hood's fleet was no longer safe in the harbor. Without access to the harbor, coalition commanders could no longer be sure they could resupply the garrison or evacuate them if the French breached the defenses. Early in the pre-dawn hours, Admiral Hood called an emergency council of war. And, just as Napoleon had predicted, all of the senior officers on the expedition agreed. The fall of Fort Mulgrave meant it was time to retreat from Toulon. The orders went out, and preparations began immediately. Every minute of delay was another minute the French would have to move more guns onto that hill. Napoleon had been right all along. Le Caire was the key that unlocked the entire 15-mile front around Toulon. To the credit of the coalition forces, the evacuation was carried out with textbook efficiency. No one panicked. They moved quickly and quietly enough that there was no need for bloody rearguard actions. The whole force was successfully evacuated, along with thousands of Frenchmen who had supported them and feared the terrible retribution of the Jacobins. British and Spanish naval officers scrambled around the harbor, trying to destroy as much of the naval infrastructure and burn as many French ships as they could. They made a heroic effort. A supply depot and several shipyard facilities were burned, and six warships were sunk, but there simply wasn't enough time for a thorough demolition of the fleet. Hood was able to take a few ships with him, but the vast majority of the French Mediterranean fleet fell back into the hands of the Republicans, along with most of the naval supplies and infrastructure. When the French retook the city, they found a large number of Republican sailors who had been imprisoned by the coalition. This was a windfall for the revolution. The loss of the Mediterranean fleet had been a catastrophe, but the quick reconquest of Toulon had forced the coalition to leave behind the ships and men they needed to rebuild it. The Republic's Mediterranean fleet would be back in action on the high seas within three months. 
By daybreak on the 19th of December, the coalition force was gone. Just about 48 hours since those Spanish gunpowder ships blew up. That's pretty fast for an era in which everything moved under the power of wind and muscle. Once Toulon was secured, the representatives on mission wasted no time in dispatching revolutionary justice. Fortunately for the people of Toulon, none of the worst butchers of the terror were present at these tribunals. But that's not to say the repression wasn't bad, merely that hundreds were killed when it could easily have been thousands. They even conscripted hundreds of stonemasons to demolish the residential parts of the city as punishment for treason, collective punishment taken to an absurd extreme. However, Toulon was far too important for this plan to be practical, and it wasn't carried out. Men who fought for the coalition side were executed as traitors. Simply being a sailor in the fleet and not having been imprisoned as a Republican sympathizer was taken as evidence of treason. Many of these men were tried in batches and executed by impromptu firing squads who finished off their victims with swords and bayonets. These were horrific scenes. But the coalition had been invited into Toulon. There could be no question that a massive act of treason had occurred. But despite the circumstances, even many supporters of the revolution felt the representatives on mission had gone too far. Napoleon was one of them. He did not take part in any of these massacres, claiming disability from his wounded leg. He'd been well enough to charge uphill, leading an assault on a fortified position only days earlier, but apparently now he was too hobbled to lead a firing squad. Napoleon did not disapprove of execution of traitors in principle, but the brutal, haphazard nature of the killings sickened him. He requested a transfer away from Toulon, and played invalid until he heard back from Paris. Napoleon wasn't alone in this. Dozens of officers from the Army of the Alps requested transfers or sought retirement. With Toulon retaken, the campaign was obviously over. There was no more need of them, no more glory to be had. Few officers were happy babysitting a bunch of bloodthirsty politicians while the war raged on elsewhere. Even within the Republican ranks, people were growing weary of the terror. Despite being marred by indiscriminate bloodshed, the capture of Toulon was a triumph for the Republic. The Federalist revolt in the South had been suppressed in just half a year. In entering Toulon, the coalition had been handed a golden opportunity to open a new front against the revolutionaries, and it had been snatched away from them in only a few months. The Mediterranean fleet had been dealt a serious blow, but recapturing it almost intact mitigated much of the damage. In many ways, it was Napoleon's triumph. Sieges are won or lost by artillery, and he'd built up the small, inexperienced artillery branch of the Army of the Alps into something formidable in a very short time. It was his plan, the plan he had doggedly advocated from day one, which ultimately led to victory. Napoleon could certainly be self-aggrandizing, but this was generally a trait he deployed strategically. In the case of Toulon, he was painfully humble. His official reports gave all credit to General Dugamier. He had trampled all over military etiquette and the chain of command to get General Carteau fired, but now he was respectful and deferential. As it turned out, he was right to trust in the chain of command. 
In his official report, General Dugamier heaped praise on Napoleon, calling him a rare talent, and giving him full credit for the plan to focus on Leclerc. Napoleon's supporters in the convention were vindicated. This was a talented officer who deserved all the interest they'd taken in him. Finally, he had a real, tangible achievement he could point to as justification for his rapid rise. In recognition of the magnitude of the victory at Toulon, the convention handed out promotions to almost every soldier who distinguished himself during the siege. On December 22, 1793, 24-year-old Napoleon Bonaparte was made brigadier general. In the U.S. military today, a brigadier general twice that age would be considered young for the job. But remember, in the unique environment of the revolutionary-era French military, this wasn't unprecedented. Napoleon was joining a group of rising young officers, men who were committed both to the revolution and to the new military theories sweeping through the French army, and who had been noticed by politicians. Granted, this was a tiny, elite club, but Napoleon was not its first member, and definitely not the leader of the pack. Not yet. The victory at Toulon changed other officers' impressions of Napoleon. He was still known as a political general, but his skill was no longer in doubt. Perhaps the best indicator of Napoleon's rise in reputation is that the enemies of the Republic began to take notice of him. A British intelligence report made note of him by name, as being largely responsible for the coalition's defeat. Later in life, Napoleon would claim it was the victory at Toulon which first gave him confidence as a military commander. Looking back on our story so far, I think you'd agree he did not outwardly appear to lack confidence up to this point. Even in his school days at Brienne, Napoleon was self-assured and opinionated. I think the difference at Toulon was that someone in power finally listened to him. Napoleon had always been an agitator and an insubordinate. He did things his own way and insisted he was right, even when his superiors disagreed or ordered him otherwise. That tendency had gotten him into trouble with Pauli, with his commander on the La Madalena expedition, and with Carteau. Finally, with General Dugamier, for the first time, someone actually listened to him. The result was triumph, which had played out exactly as Napoleon had predicted. Napoleon's impulse to follow his own intuition above all else was vindicated, and on an incredibly grand scale. If history had been different, maybe Napoleon eventually would have settled down and become less headstrong, but after too long, that part of his character became even more prominent. Usually this was a strength. Napoleon's judgment and intuition were very good. He was incredibly intelligent and had a better understanding of this new age of war and politics than almost anyone alive. But as we'll see, it could also lead him to be inflexible and tyrannical and blind him to his own limitations. Next time, we'll see General Bonaparte do his first stint with the Army of Italy, the force he would one day make famous. We'll also hear some sorry stories from his romantic life. Until then, thanks for joining me. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. <laughs> 